I wake up and I ask, what would Jordan Cooper do, WWJCD? Something else, something else you want to talk about that's not uh, Bernie Sanders or Donald Trump. Oh, man. Um, you mean I can't spend uh, five minutes plugging for Bernie Sanders? <laughs> I kid, I kid. We're Christians. We can't vote for a Democrat. No, um, no, no. We're, we're, conservative, oh, we're conservative Christians. We have to redeem the politics and redeem Washington, D.C. So, oh, man, I'm going to get in trouble for this. So, uh, well, we had a conversation via text a few days ago about um, the nature of the reformed world. And sadly, I think uh, there's a number of people in the reformed world that are mourning the schismatic nature of uh, or the schismatic reality of the reformed world right now. And um, I think it's, it's not an easy situation to address because obviously uh, certain people are willing to, for lack of a better term, compromise more. I think that people who are uh, known for being confessional kind of, uh, let's say, stubborn, hard, hard-nosed about it, that they're very unyielding and that there's no, no compromise when it comes to the confessions. You're either reformed, meaning... You hold to every jot and tittle of the three forms of unity of the Westminster Standards, or you don't. Um, I guess my the topic for conversation I was thinking of is what do we, how do we live in a, a healthy reformed world where we have differences, and what are acceptable differences if you're going to call yourself reformed? Um, I think we have very different. I think we draw the line in different places in the sand, if that's a fair way to put it, between you and I. Yeah, we we definitely do, and and I've got a couple uh, general ideas about what what we have to do for genuinely reformed. I mean, I think uh, one of the things that we need to encourage and promote is a a general awareness and a general familiarity with things more than the Westminster Confession of Faith. Um, I know particularly the denomination that I attend and the denomination you attend require ordination vows to be taken with respect to the Westminster Confession of Faith. And so as far as serving in churches, we, we definitely want to make sure that we emphasize the Westminster Confession of Faith. But we also need to understand that there are different ways of saying things in different time periods from different portions of that small portion of the globe at the time that are still categorically confessionally reformed. And I sometimes fear that in the sake of uniformity, you you can enter into, into discussions where people will tell you, well, you know, the Heidelberg just says everything that the Westminster Confession says. Um, or the Westminster Shorter Catechism, you know, it, it says the exact same thing, but it says it in a different way. Well, I I don't actually agree with that. I think they they emphasize different things, and I do think they say things different ways. 
when they agree, but I think there are minor nuances and there are minor things that are that get left out. And this is incredibly important and practical when we're now many hundreds of years later discussing what is the definition of reformed. And the first answer I'm going to give is, well, we need to make sure that it's consistent with a reformed confession or creed, which means we need to be familiar with all of them, and not just the ones that have become super popular during our time, but everything that has had a lasting impact, even if it's fallen away in the last hundred years or so, if it has had a substantial impact on the Reformed community throughout its history, then it should be more or less considered Reformed. What, what would you think is it, for that as a starting place? <coughs> Um, I tend to agree. I think that there's going to be the problem in part is a definitional problem in some, some sense. I think the way reformed is used today, some people think that it means, oh, like the reformation, like the five solas. And in that sense, well, Lutherans, Arminians, Reformed, Continental Reformed, and Presbyterians, Anglicans, we're all in the same boat. We are all, in that sense, Reformed. I don't think that's good enough. I don't think that's distinct enough. Um, then people say Calvinistic, and I also think that's incredibly broad. I mean, you have John Piper and John MacArthur on one end, and then you have uh, uh, Van Til and... Uh, uh, Bavink on another. You have very different traditions that are going in very different directions, and um, it's it doesn't mean as much. I think where I come with what does reformed mean, I assume, I think as you just said, that there is some churchly confession and church documents that people are um, submitting to and that the leadership and that the, the pastors are held to for as much their sake as the congregation's sake. Pe pastors shouldn't be able to just invent new doctrine. And if they're teaching outside of things they've taken their ordination vows on, they should be called on it. Um, the most popular are the three forms of unity, which is the Heidelberg Catechism, the Canons at Dort, and the Belgic Confession, and then the Westminster Standards, which are Westminster Confession of Faith and the Shorter and Larger Catechism. But I don't know if this is what you had in mind. The first thing that came to mind when you were talking about other lesser-known documents, uh, you have the Second Helvetic Confession, I think. I, don't, I think there's some Congregationalist churches that hold to that. Um, so in the sense that I believe to be reformed, you have to be, uh, confessionally reformed. I agree. Now, what does that mean? Which confessions? I think we agree though. A pastor must submit to the confessions of his denomination. And, 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 and I think it, it, it should be a relatively, um, sharp, Adherence, like that, we. I don't want a lot of slack in in what a pastor can take exception to, but that does not mean that an individual can't be reformed with exceptions. They might not be able to serve as a pastor, 
But if you're in if if you're in the field of academia, or if you're a layman, you can you can take exceptions to the confessions and still be reformed. And you can take exceptions in the pastorate. It depends on the presbytery or the the um, I don't know what the bot the governing body is in the continental reform. But I'm Presbyterian, so I'll just say presbytery. There are certain allowances that various presbyteries will allow. Um, for instance, one of the differences between the two strands of Reformed theology is uh, the Sabbath and what's allowed on the Sabbath. Is, is recreating allowed on the Sabbath? Well, the Continental Reformed has a very positive aspect of what the Sabbath is about and what we're to, do, what we're to uh, positively do on the Sabbath, glorify God, worship, things like that. Um, Whereas the Westminster Standard goes much more uh, specific, and it actually speaks out against um, setting aside time to not recreate and things in that nature. Actually, I would pull it up if I had, but I don't have the confession next to me, so I'm just going from memory. But the point is, is that it's very specific in ways that some people object to, and that's okay, you can have certain objections. Um, what objections or exceptions that are allowed for a pastor to have, that depends on the presbytery that they're trying to be ordained in. But um, there's still very big issues that I think you and I would both agree, if you throw this doctrine away, if you have this as an exception, you're no longer reformed. Like, Unconditional election, just very basically. If you don't hold the unconditional election, I don't think you can be reformed. I, I think uh, unconditional election is one. I believe that uh, the a combination of using the TULIP acronym, I think a combination of irresistible grace and preservation of the saints um, are essential that that there's not going to be a regenerate or justified individual who loses their, their status before God. I think those are also essential. And from a reform perspective, um, I also would say, I think you have to hold the covenant theology. It's, it's, it's an assumption that runs through everything in the system, how you formulate it. There's, obvious discussions that we need to have. Obviously, uh, John Murray would formulate covenant theology uh, different than Meredith Klein, different than, um, I think you could say, uh, a Kuiper or a Bovink. And I think there's some discussion that can be had. But as a system, covenant theology is characteristically reformed. I don't think you can throw away covenant theology and be reformed. I agree with that as well. I think my the only time I have an apprehension to that is that when people use the terminology covenant theology, they normally presume Westminsterian covenant theology. And as much as Westminster has become the standard for covenant theology, um, it's not the only expression of covenant theology. And, and I don't necessarily see there being a willingness to bend on that in many circles. It's like, okay, you 
we understand that there are these other confessions, and we understand that they don't speak about covenants in as detailed of terms as the covenant of grace, the covenant of works, this, that, and the other. Um, and, and there seems to be a push to always enunciate our covenant theology through the lens of Westminster. And I think that's something that, that probably could be given a little bit more wiggle room. Just briefly in closing, one of the things that I think has brought you and I together is, well, um, we have very have an interesting balance in theology. I'll just leave it at that. Talk to one of us if uh, you want to know where I'm going with that. I think you understand what I, what I mean by our interesting I, balance I, of theology. I just presume that you are referring to the fact of Jordan Cooper being in both of our our libraries. Every everything revolves around Jordan Cooper. Every every single thing in my life. I wake up and I ask what would Jordan Cooper do? WWJCD. Um my, my bracelet be, just came in the be, mail by the way. So it's funny you would mention that. Oh, that's yeah. good. That's good. That's good. Hat tip to Jordan. Um I want some royalties. Anyways, the <laughs> I think you and I both have a a desire for reformed ecumenicity. And I think people hear ecumenical and they often seem to go with, well, we just need to get along and do stuff and say grace and gospel and Jesus, and that's it. And I don't think that's enough. Um, there's going to be, I don't think it's good enough to just say we're going to brush these differences under the rug. But one of the things that I want to see is people that are willing to have relationships with one another, find people in your community um, that are uh, like-minded in the broadest sense of being reformed and have discussions, go out and, and share a table with them, have fellowship with them, sit down, go to dinner, have a beer with them, open up the, the floor for conversations and invest in people's lives. Um, there's going to be a lot of lively discussions that we can have, and sometimes they're going to get more heated. And sometimes I would even say raising voices and being digging in your heels to some degree is going to be healthy as long as you're willing to learn from one another and say, I'm going to listen. I might disagree. I might, um, I might completely reject what you're telling me, but I'm going to listen and I'm going to think about what you're saying and I'm going to represent you fairly. And that comes through. Um, it's not easy. I, I, I don't think it's easy to, listen to someone that you disagree with and deal with them charitably. But I think that's what we're called to. And the reformed community is incredibly schismatic. And part of the way that I think we have to take a step forward is to understand there is diversity here. All of it might not be healthy, but we have to be involved in each other's lives and we have to listen to one another and we have to think very critically in the sense that we're analyzing and we're not accepting everything everyone says, but we have to be gracious with one another. And I guess um, that seems like it's a very hard balance to maintain, and I think it is. 
I don't know that it's easy to have all of these different ideas in the reformed world, but I think it's a reality and everyone says they're right. Everyone says everyone should agree with me, but ultimately we, we aren't there. And I don't know if we'll ever be there on this side of eternity, but we have to, well, love one another. And that's meaning that means that we have to deal with each other graciously and we have to listen and respect one another. I think that's another element that, especially on the internet, it gets thrown away really quick is respect and love and charity. Those three things I think just get thrown away in a lot of internet discussion, which is why it's an unhelpful, um, it's an unhelpful reality to just, have all your lines drawn in the sand on a computer screen, get to know people and um, develop relationships with them and listen to them and love them. And that means bearing one another's burdens. That means um, helping one another. That means listening and being charitable with one another, not uh, tearing each other down all of the time. I mean, friendly banter is great. And I'm not saying that we have to be completely uncritical of one another, but I think the reformed world mastered in being critical and we don't even have a basic understanding of what it is to be gracious and what it is to listen. And I think that's the steps that we have to take in order to um, be light and darkness and to show the world that we can, we can have our distinctions, but we can love each other and that, we won't be able to effectively love the world if we can't even love our brothers and sisters. Yeah. One of my favorite ecumenical theologians and honestly questionably reformed participants is Karl Barth. And one of the things that he says concerning church unity is that it's discovered, not created. And it's this idea that we're, you're not going, we assert different propositions uh, some of us, you and I, on certain subjects, and, and definitely across the Reformed world, we assert different propositions. And so if we are going to find any kind of unity together, we are going to need to have conversations together and, and delve into things together. And we're going to need to care about each other and actually listen to one another because it's not unity is not going to be created by me convincing you of my point or you convincing me of your point. It's going to come from both of us discussing together and listening to each other and actually caring about what the other person says for that to happen. And you, you brought it up and it's completely true. And I'm going to end on this before I go on a rant. But if, if you can't care about people on the internet, then just get off because that's exactly what's going to be communicated to everyone you engage with. This person doesn't care about us. And unfortunately, we do see this where these anguishing fights on Facebook or on a Facebook group or on a, on Twitter or through blogs. And the only thing that gets communicated in the whole scheme of things is we're incapable of loving one another. And if if you can't do that on the internet and you know you can't do that, if you're the kind of person that you can only invest in people's lives if they're face-to-face -face with you, then log off the internet. 
There's absolutely no way we can blame the medium of the internet for our inability to love one another. Maybe some of us aren't great at crafting a theological statement in 140 characters, but the reality is we should be able to communicate love for one another in any medium. And anyone who tries to use, you know, Facebook or Twitter or blog comments um, to, to say, well, I couldn't communicate properly in that medium. No, you, you could have communicated to the person that you loved them enough to care what they were saying. To put it, I guess, succinctly, there's going to be plenty of things to disagree about. And we're not arguing for everyone being uh, completely um, identical in their theologies and their worldviews. But um, find other Reformed believers, and I mean that in the confessional sense, find other believers who are Reformed in their confessions and subscribe to confession. Or even broader than that, get to know them, love them, uh, go out and have a beer with them, and... um, learn to love people until you love people you will not be able to effectively um i don't think love christ because he died for people and if you don't love the church you can't love the bridegroom of the church who laid down his life for the church so you can't have christ without the church the church has people and people are a mess so it's going to be messy deal with it because Christ gave his life for her.